We're continuing the book of Exodus. Today's message is, uh, is really, it's exciting. So let's, uh, last week in our message titled From the Inside Out, we worked our way from the furnishings of the tabernacle to the structure itself. Having seen Jesus pictured in the furnishings, we then saw how he was pictured in several parts of the tabernacle as well. While other parts of God were really revealed in the dwelling place itself, we saw God pictured in the dwelling place. We saw the body of Christ re revealed in the dwelling place. Individual believers and the redemptive work of Christ, as well as a picture of heaven, was all revealed in the tabernacle. This morning, as we listen to our God's listening, God's instructions or conversation to Moses, we'll see the Lord continues moving from the inside out as he gives the details now for we're moving to the outer court of the tabernacle. We're going to look at a little bit of what's going on there. And our message this morning is titled Life from Death. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you so much for today. God, I praise you for the opportunity to come and bring your word. Uh, Lord, I do not feel worthy. Lord, I am one that has been redeemed. God, thank you for who I, who I was. And You've made me today, God, not through me, but through your power, through your spirit. Lord, thank you for each one of us that have that story, God. I praise you for that. Lord, I pray that you'll uh, work in us today. pray that you'll have our heart open and ready, have us ears to hear. And Lord, I pray just, uh, I know you've spoken to me, and I would ask now that, Lord, you'll speak through me, that the human element of this message would be removed, and it would be, thus saith the Lord. God, we love you. Thank you for what you're going to do. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, as we've looked at the Israelites, we've watched God actually allow, through the book of Exodus, good things and bad things take place in the life of the Israelites. There have been days where they've had great things going on. There's also been times of great persecution. So through persecution, we've seen God bring deliverance. We've seen those that have had desperate needs, and then we've seen God make provision for them. And as we study this, we're going to realize the fact that what God's doing is God's strengthening their faith. He's shaping their faith. And a lot of times in our lives, guess what? We need to have our faith shaped a little bit. Who knows that your faith maybe progresses or changes throughout the life of your, of your, of your salvation? From the time we were where we start and the time we may finish, Lord willing, if we're constantly working on our salvation, it's going to be a growing thing. God's working within us. But what we're going to find with these Israelites is they're a picture of us as individual believers. And guess what? The Bible records them as being stiff-necked. Stiff-necked means they don't want to turn. They have their decision. They're going this way. And God's going, no. And they're like, no, we're doing it our way. How many of us know that we're traditionally, you and I, we're rebellious by nature? That's who we are, right? So when we look at the Israelites, let's not judge them. Let's remember that it's actually us, okay? So as we look at these things and we start to look at these pictures, we're going to realize if I have some instructions for us as well. So we're going to be at Exodus 27, verses 1 through 21. Exodus 27, 1 through 21. So thou shalt make an altar of shittim wood, five cubits long. That five cubits long is seven and a half feet. And it says in five cubits broad, seven and a half feet wide. And the altar shall be four square, and the height thereof shall be four and a half feet tall. So we're looking at a seven and a half by seven and a half by four and a half foot tall shape that's before us, okay? And what's interesting about altars, and we studied this before in our message that we did called the furnishings of God, we looked at the way God talked about the word table and the word altar and how those kind of work hand in hand and what those things purpose was and what's interesting about them. And Exodus, uh, Ezekiel 40, 41, just to prove that to you, four tables were on this side and four tables on that side by the side of the gate, each ta eight tables. And what we found out is they were a place of sacrifice. In this verse, it says, whereupon they slew their sacrifices. So the Hebrew word that you see for altar actually translates a killing place. A killing place. So when we think about the word altar, I want you to think that in your mind. It would be through the death of sacrificial animals that atonement for sin would be made and consecration would be made unto God. It will be upon another altar, another killing place that would be made of wood. It's only in the shape of a cross that we'll see another sacrifice 
right? As Jesus gives his life. Hebrews 13, verses 10 through 15 says this. We have an altar. This is referencing the cross. We have an altar whereof they have no right to eat which serve the tabernacle. He says, look, those that are unbelievers, they have no right to come to this because they don't believe, but by faith they can come. For the bodies of those beasts, those blood, whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned without the camp. When you see the word without, it means outside. Wherefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. Let us go, therefore, therefore unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach. For here have we no continuing city, for we seek one to come. He's saying, look, we don't have a place on earth. It's our place. We don't fit in here, but there's one that's coming in heaven. He says, by him, verse 15, and this is where you want to pay attention. By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. Thanks be to God for the fact that that Jesus Christ, by his love, by his grace, went to that cross. Because realistically, that was our cross. It wasn't his cross. That was for sin. That was for those that had done wrong. You and I all fall in that category. But he did it on our behalf. Our salvation was purchased with the blood of Christ alone, but at, uh, by our, our daily sanctification, where we're working on cleansing ourselves and living for God, that lies on us. That's a daily struggle. As, Jesus, as, as, as Eric was just speaking, he says, I am redeemed. Yes, we're redeemed. Praise the Lord. The guilt of our sin has been taken away, but the struggle of our daily life, which we see in the, vision, in the, in the book of Exodus, as we watch these Israelites, as they travel through the wilderness, what are they constantly dealing with? Challenges, adversity. They have opportunities to have faith. They can trust in God or they can fall into their fear. And what we find is them, they vacillate up and down, right? So we see this and that's a picture of us, right? That old flesh just doesn't want to give up. When we consider here, they're talking about their flesh, their, their, their willingness to, to sanctify themselves. You and I, every day, we're supposed to be sanctifying ourselves, sanctifying ourselves. I'm supposed to be dealing with these things that are in my life that are not pleasing to God. But what happens is, like this flesh, it doesn't give up. It does not quit. It isn't willing just to roll over and die, right? Unfortunately, because our flesh is so strong, we have to do what? We have to kill it. We have to kill it. Because the flesh is going to fight you every single day. Galatians 2.20 says this, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave his life for me. Luke 9.23 says this, And he said unto them, All, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his, notice this, cross and follow me. Galatians 5.24, and they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. You and I are struggled every day with affections and lusts. We lust after things. That means we are just not satisfied with what we have. Got to have a little bit more. Uh, Andrew Carnegie, when he was asked, he was being interviewed near the end of his life and they went to him. Was, at the time, he was the richest man on the planet earth. And they interviewed him and they said, you know what, Mr. Carnegie, how much money is enough? And he said, just one more dollar. Just one more dollar. And that's, unfortunately, a really good description of us. If I could just have a little bit more. Mark 8, 35 says this, For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. Whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospels, the same shall save it. Galatians 6, 14 says, But God forbid that I should glory. He says, I'm not going to celebrate in anything, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is Paul. He says, By whom the, the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. I should be crucifying this flesh. Every day when you wake up in the morning, your flesh wants to be fed. It wants to be entertained. It wants to be rested, right? When we're tired, what do we do? We rest. When we're hungry, we feed it. How many of us fed ourselves pretty well in the last few days? Aye, aye, aye. Diet time, all of us. Youch. 
I'm going to fast for about a week. I'm, gonna say, I'm out of control. Lord have mercy. I, 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 you shouldn't eat bread pudding and can't, all those things. You're not eating the same day, but I did anyway. It is what it is. Uh, the only way we can grow in our faith, the only way we can grow and mature is the bottom line is we have to be willing to take our flesh, our desires, and we've got to be willing to take them to that cross, and we've got to nail them to that cross and be willing to let them die. It's only through the process of sanctification, through admitting our sins and repenting of them, that we can follow the Lord and be free of their influence. See, the thing is, if we're not repenting of sin and we just try to accept it in our life, it becomes more and more and more invasive. It gets more and more draw upon us. And it has a tendency to draw our attention. We go, man, I'm going to serve God today. Bring. Oh, well, let me check, my, check Facebook. Next thing you know, 20 minutes later, <laughs> it's the funniest video in the world. Oh, my God, I got to get to work. Never even got to the Bible. I just got sidetracked with the silliness, right? How many of us get sidetracked with the silliness of life? Man, it's one of the most amazing tools that the devil uses, which is called distraction. It's incredible how it affects us. But it's our flesh. Our flesh wants to be fueled. The deliverance from bondage that we've seen in the book of Exodus. Because remember, when we look at the book of Exodus, what we see is a picture of humanity. What we had is the, the Israelites, a picture of us. Here they are in the bondage to sin in Egypt. Okay, Egypt is a picture of the world. It's a picture of sin. They have a taskmaster that rules over Egypt. His name is Pharaoh. Guess what? This world has a taskmaster that rules over it. His name is Satan. He rules, and guess what? They were in the bondage of sin, right? They were in the bondage of, 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 of slavery. You and I are in the bondage to sin. So we're under the captive control of a taskmaster who rules us with sin. And what happens is they cried out, and God heard their cry, and he sent a deliverer. Jesus, Moses is a picture of Jesus. Moses shows up, and guess what he does? He draws them out of the world. He draws them out of Egypt and takes them into the wilderness. Now they have some time where they get to be tested. This life is that time. You're being tested. How many years you get? 80, 90, 100 years, whatever it is. This is your wilderness. What are you going to do in the wilderness? Are you going to keep your eyes on Canaan, which is what they were told? Put your eyes on Canaan. That's where you're going to the promised land. Remember the land of milk and honey. That's where your focus is. Pay attention to that. And they're going, but, 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 well, what, what can we find here? Can we find water to drink? Can we find food to eat? And God provides manna. And yet, it's satisfying. It sustains them. Sustains them, but it doesn't satisfy them. And they become frustrated and they fry it and shape it and do all these things to try to make it satisfy. But it doesn't because God doesn't promise to satisfy us in this world. He promises to satisfy us in Canaan. He says he'll sustain you in the wilderness. He'll keep you alive. He said, the Bible says he'll meet your needs, not your wants. But how many of us get met, our wants get met even? God's good, man. God's good. And we find ourselves in the world trying to be satisfied by the things of this world and they will never, ever ever satisfied because guess what? They're not designed to. Satisfaction is there. Eyes on the Lord. Galatians 5 1 says this, Stand fast therefore in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free. Be not, look at this, be not entangled, notice the word that comes next, again with the yoke of bondage. If you are a born again child of God, you were brought out of the yoke of bondage, but because of our flesh, we will draw ourselves right back to where we came from. What do we see in the Israelites? Every time they reach a tough situation, we should kill Moses and go back to Egypt. Over and over and over again. Let's go back to bondage. Let's go back to bondage. Let's go back to bondage. It's a picture of us. We remain in the bondage of sin or we claim the freedom that's already ours. That's what Eric was just saying about in the song, that freedom, man. So let's look closer. Sorry, that was just verse one. Now we're to verse two. Here we go. <laughs> 
And thou shalt make the horns of it upon the four corners thereof. His horns shall be of the same, and thou shalt overlay it with brass. So we're going to have horns. It's a picture I've got. It's a, not the best image, but I'm going to show it to you. So you see it's horns. It's talking about this, this whole big box that's shaped here. And these horns that are here, what happens? These actually represent um, the power of God. They're an image there. There's also something that, that we see also. They're actually there actually for the, um, for the animals to be tied to. Um, they actually use that as a, as a way to attach them. But do we remember, this is, says they're made out of brass, okay? And we talked about the different metals. We've been talking about that last few weeks. And we talked about gold, right? Gold was holiness. That's deity as we see gold. And then we look at this here. As we go into, we saw silver. Now, silver is a picture of redemption. So when you see gold and brass, you're looking at deity and holiness. You look at silver, that's always going to be a picture of redemption. And then the last one is brass. And brass represents judgment judgment, okay? So we're going to notice this thing is made of brass. It's in the outer court, remember? Everything inside was gold. This is brass. So the matching horns are there again. They're pointing to the power of God. That's Habakkuk 3.4. The purpose of the horns, Psalm 118.27. God is the Lord which hath showed us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords even unto the horns of the altar. So, and think about this. It's kind of like when you go to the dog groomer. So you ever take your dog to the dog groomer? And they had that stick thing and they hook, their, hook their leash to it, keeps the dog kind of under control. That's kind of what these horns were for on this altar because this is where the sacrifices we made. Verse 3, And thou shalt make his pans to receive his ashes and his shovels and his basins and his flesh pots and his fire pans, all the vessels thereof thou shalt make of, again, brass. Each of these utensils has a very specific purpose, okay? The pans and shovels were for gathering the ashes of the burnt offerings. The basins, these were to collect the blood. And what's interesting, if you've ever done a Revelation study and you come to Revelation 6, 9, you'll see that the martyrs of God, those that are murdered and killed for God, they're always going to be under the altar. Reason being, and what they do with this blood, when they gather this blood from these sacrifices, guess where it gets poured? At the base, under the altar. It's a picture representing back and forth. Then they had the, uh, the flesh pot, or the flesh hooks. These are three-pronged hooks that would be arranging for arranging the, the different uh, morsels, also for taking the portion that was for the priests out. And then the fire pans. These were to collect, collect it, the, it says fire pans, but it's actually talking about coals. This is where they would collect the coals, and they were going to burn incense. This is where those coals would come from. Do you remember when we talked about Abinadab, or Abihu and Nadab, the guys, and they took, the Bible says they used strange fire? And God killed them for using strange fire? Because guess what? They did not go to the altar to get the, to get the coals. They just went to a fire out in the field and snatched it up. And they were like, we're just going to use this. It's fine. But it was not sanctified. So God, so all these things are important. Each thing has a specific purpose. He's very precise in giving instructions because he doesn't want them to have any excuse for their disobedience. And guess what? You and I have no excuse for our disobedience. We have no excuse. Romans, look at this. Even those that do not know God, they have no excuse. Romans 2, 14 and 15 says this, For when the Gentiles, which have, not, it says that, which have not the law, right? they don't follow God, do by nature the things contained in the law. They do by nature. It's in them. They know what's right and wrong. They can see it. It says, which show the work of the law written in their hearts. They're born with it. They know. God bless you. Their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the mean while accusing or else excusing one another. Romans, 19, uh, Romans 1, 19, 20. Because that which may be, may be known of God is manifest in them. Right? It's in them. You know who God is. You can deny him, but you know he's there. For God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him in the creation. He says, look at creation. Look at the way the sun rises. Look at the way the gravity works. Look how the, the tides work. Look at your way your body heals, the way you can reproduce. There's proof of God all around you. He says, look, these things are here. And he says, and what is the next thing he says? And he says, um, 
uh, they are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, that's us, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. We have no excuse. You go, oh, I didn't know it was wrong. No, you know if stealing's wrong. Everybody knows that's wrong. Killing, you know that's wrong. Don't pull that one. Oh, I had no idea. When you walk in the room and your child's in the, eating cookies and you walk in and catch them, oh, they're not going, oh, I know this is okay. They're going, oh, right? They know. They know. Even little kids know. So if we choose rebellion, guess what? It is by choice. We are choosing to do wrong, even though down deep we know the truth. Yet another example, and this is an example of God's love. And the fact that he gives us, he gives us the law and impends it upon our hearts, giving us a chance to do the right thing. Remember, God's not in this for us to, to fail. God wants us to succeed. Like any parent, right? We don't set our kids up for failure. We set our kids up to succeed. Now, they may think we're setting them up for failure. You're just picking out of, you just want to ruin my life. No, that's not the case. If you're a teenager or a young person, that's not the case. They are your biggest fans because your success Guess what? It's their success. And God created us for a successful walk with him. Remember, this whole thing is about fellowship. The problem is that we don't listen. We don't listen, just like the Israelites. We vacillate between obedience and disobedience, selfishness and selflessness, between godly behavior and worldly behavior, kindness and unkindness, between sensitive and insensitive, patient and impatient. Does that accurately describe any of us? Yeah, every day. There's days where you're like, man, I'm so patient today. There's days you're like, just, don't, just, don't, 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 just stop it. I am out of patience today. My, my book is like this short. I'm ready to explode. Right? And another day, they're like, hey, and you're like, oh, no problem. Don't worry about it. Just drop it there. It's good. Right? We're, but guess what? We're inconsistent, just like the Israelites, because we're not taking our flesh to the killing place. Every day, we're supposed to go kill that flesh. And when we don't kill the flesh, guess what? It rears its ugly head, and it's always ugly. And what happens is a lot of times we'll give it a stern talking to. We don't kill it, but we might take it to the altar and go, look. It's like me and Reese Cups. I mean, I'm just telling you. I love Reese Cups. If Reese Cups are in the house, I'm going to eat a Reese Cup. I'm just saying. I, if you should be on a diet or not, I'm like, you know what? I just have one. What's the big deal? I think I heard nothing. But if I really meant I wasn't going to eat Reese Cups, because what I'll do is I'll go to the fridge and I'll be like, all right, today is the last day. No more Reese Cups today. They can stay in there. I don't even care. I'm, but I'm not eating them. I can tell you that much. They are done. They're dead to me. Sure enough, a few hours later, I'm just like, well, you know, I'm just, I mean, nobody's. <laughs> just one reason. I mean, nobody's going to know. You know what I'm saying? I'm going to put that wrapper at the bottom of the trash. <laughs> Am I the only one who does that? Come on. <laughs> you know we all do it. <laughs> right? But if I really meant it, wouldn't I be like, you know what, Reese Cups? Trash. Done. But no, I just gave it a stern talking to. But it ain't going to work because it's in my will. And I'm going to eat those key Reese Cups. Don't give me any more Reese Cups. Man, they gave me like 40 at my birthday. And I mean, I still got a couple left over. Not for long, though. Anyway, um, remember, <laughs> the altar is a killing place. Romans 8.13 says, If ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify, listen to that, mortify means kill, mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. Verse 4, and thou shalt make for it a grate of network of brass. Upon that net shalt thou make four brass and, brass and rings, and the four rings thereof 
And thou shalt put under it the compass of the altar beneath, that the net may be even to the midst of the altar. So this altar would be made uh, as a place for the sacrifice, not only for them to do the killing, but they also would seal, set this thing over the fire, and it would burn up through the grate to eat up the sacrifice. Thou shalt make staves for the altar, staves of shittim wood, and overlay them with brass. And what's interesting about this network of brass, remember God does everything for a purpose, and we find the word net. Net is always something that means about encompassing or all-encompassing, you find it in the scriptures. And what we find here is what he's saying is, look, look when this judgment is made, Nothing's going to slip through. Everything is going to be captured by this net. And the reason is because guess what? No one's going to escape judgment of God. I don't care if you believe in God or don't believe in God. One day, the Bible says, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that he is Lord. You can deny it all you want to, but it doesn't matter, right? That's like you can believe that, you know, like I believe I paid my power bill, but if I didn't pay it, guess what? My power's not going to stay on. <laughs> They're still going to flip it off. It ain't going to make a bit of difference, right? So bottom line is it's reality whether we want to did it or not. Verse 7. And the staves shall be put into the rings, and staves upon, uh, shall be upon the two sides of the altar to bear it. So just like all the other tables we've seen, all the other altars, every altar has been carried by the staves. Um, these are simply beams that they would carry, carry the altar on. So this altar is a hollow box. Again, looking at that image, hollow box that would be set over, if you have it or not, it doesn't matter. There it is, yeah. So basically it was a hollow box designed so that they could set it over and everything would burn through and they would collect all the stuff underneath. All right, now to the outer court. Verse 9. And thou shalt make the court of the tabernacle for the south side, southward. There shall be hangings for the court of fine twine linen of an hundred cubits long. Remember we talked about a cubit? A cubit is basically about 18 inches. It's measured from here to here on the regular size man. And what that would be about 150 feet. So we're talking about fine linen, 150 feet long. There's an image I have pull up for you guys, give you an idea. So we're talking about these sides right now, all right, all the way down here. All right. Now, it says here, uh, and what's interesting about this and the fact that he uses linen is linen would have been white. And what's really interesting in the fact that if you would have seen this camp from anywhere outside, all of the tents would be covered with skins to make them waterproof, which means they would be dark and they'd be dirty and ugly looking. So you'd have these thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of dark tents. And you'd have this one white shape right in the center. It's a picture of God, but it's also a picture of the sanctification of God's house from the rest of the world. It's full of darkness, and here we have light. Verse number 10, it says, And the twenty pillars thereof and their twenty sockets shall be of brass. Remember, brass is for judgment. The hooks of the pillars and their fillets shall be silver. So these twenty pillars are going to mimic what's inside of the tabernacle. And what's different is those were wood wrapped with gold on silver sockets. These are going to be just wooden poles with a silver top. They're going to have silver hooks on them, and they're going to be sitting on a base of brass. Remember, inside of the tabernacle is representation of heaven. As we get outside, we're now in the system. We're in judgment. And what meets the ground is brass, which is judgment. Um, an image of it, I think I have one to pull up for you to see real quick. Yeah. So it basically looks something like this. So there's hooks in between here. These are silver. And then they're going to be running down. And we're going to talk about the, the, the stakes that go into the ground. We'll talk to those about those in just a moment. But it's interesting in the fact that um, where the pillars and the interior wood were covered with the, with the gold here. Now the gold representing righteousness. And then what happens? God bless you. Then it would sit upon the silver. So any, anywhere the righteousness of God was going to meet the earth, there had to be judgment. Okay, that's always a picture. So the earth is the world, that's sin. Then you got silver, judgment, that's uh, our redemption. Redemption is the word, redemption, and then gold. So now as we've gone outside, we have humanity represented in the wood coming down to a base plate of brass, which represents judgment. So whenever humanity meets the world, guess what it does? It causes judgment, judgment. Okay, so we see an image there in those shapes and those specific items. So the attachments, the, the attachments um, that are here, we see also the linen. The attachments are silver. Remember, silver is redemption. 
So the only way we can be attached to God's, and what happens, the, the linen represents the sanctification of God, separation from the world. So the only way you and I can be separated from the world, sanctified from the world, is through redemption. So the connection from the wood is a silver redemptive hook that connects us to the sanctification of God. Isn't it cool how God uses very specific materials? Teaching these bigger things, it's really awesome. The Bible's just so cool. I love it. Anyway, Hebrews 10.10. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So it says here we're sanctified through Christ, which is redemption. Again, pictures. Verse number 11. And likewise, for the north side in length, there shall be hangings of a hundred cubits long, and his twenty pillars, and their twenty sockets of brass, and the hooks of the pillars, and their fillets um, of silver. So again, the north side is going to match the south side. Verse number 12. And the breadth of the court on the west shall be hangings of 50, 50 cubits. 50 cubits is 75 feet. And there to be 10 pillars and there are 10 sockets. And the breadth of the court on the east side, eastward, shall be 50 cubits. So it's 75 feet by 75 feet by 150 feet by 150 feet. That's the size that we have. I had an image if you want to throw it up there if you want, just so they can sort of see it again. So you see there. So we've got, now we've got the west side. Remember, this is the east side. God always, is always every entrance and every, you'll ever see God move, God always moves from the east to the west. So this is on the east wall. So when you're going to walk in, you're going east, heading west, okay? East to west. All right. Um, and it says here, on the hangings on the one side of the gate will be 15 cubits. 50, that's 22 and a half feet. Uh, their pillars shall be three and their sockets three. And on the other side be hangings 15 cubits, 22 and a half feet. Their pillars three and their sockets three. And for the gate of the, and the gate of the court shall be an hanging of 20 cubits. Okay, so that's 30 feet of blue and purple and scarlet. Remember inside the tabernacle. When you're entering the tabernacle, what do you go through? You, you just go through fine twine linen of blue and golden scarlet. So we know that when we go in, also the veil that separates the inner court and the outer court, it's the exact same material. So now again, we mimic the gates, gonna mimic the exact same thing. And it says here, it be fine twine linen wrought with needlework and their pillars shall be four and their sockets four. So we have a 30 foot entrance on the east side as it's going in, again, mimicking what's going to happen with the inner and the outer courts as we're working our way in. And what's cool about it is it's doing this. is you're, you're forced to go the way that God goes. God travels east to west. So when you enter this tabernacle, you are forced to mimic God's walk. Amen. And what's cool is when you go into this Bible and you let this Bible speak to you, guess what it will do? It will force you to walk the way God walks. It'll direct your path. The way God moves, if you follow the word of this God, the word of God, guess what? You'll move just like God. God does. It's a picture. Look at this. Psalm 119, 105 says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Right? And in the beginning, what happens, a lot of times we may not be the best Christian in the world. We might be a brand new Christian. We're going, I don't know. And what happens is it comes down to just obedience. Right? Here, all you got to do is be one. You know, you could try to dig through the back of the tabernacle if you wanted to, but if you'll just be obedient and do it God's way, you'll walk the way that God walks. And when we go to the scriptures, sometimes we may not understand everything, but we can be obedient. And what's cool about obedience is what obedience does is it starts to create patterns of behavior in us. And with your children, when they're young, they don't have to necessarily know why you're telling them to do it. They just need to do it, right? Why don't you stick your finger in the light socket? Because I tell you not to, right? You ever get that answer when you're a kid? I used to drive me crazy. Why not, Mom? Because I said not to. Man, I wanted a reason. No, sometimes you just got to put your head down and do what you're told. And with God, it's the same thing. And we're developing in our faith. We may not understand why we're doing it. But bottom line is God saying, you know what? Do it my way. And as you grow in your faith, guess what? You'll understand. You'll see. So when our kids have kids of their own, what happens? Man, I see exactly why you did what you did. I totally see it now. But back then, we thought it was ridiculous. But we just did it because we were supposed to be obedient. 
God's trying to teach us, and we're just like children. We need to seek him. That's the thing. We need to seek him, but not for us. We need to seek him for him. Look at this, Psalm 100, verses 4 and 5. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving. Okay? So if you're entering into that gate, right, you're going in there with your sacrifice. What are you supposed to do? You're supposed to, supposed to kill it, right? So you're, going to, you're entering the outer gate for the purpose of killing something. You're entering for the purpose of, 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 of that, that death. Then it says here, and into his courts with praise. So let's say I'm going in to kill something. I'm supposed to be praising God. Now, if you put it to us, I'm going in to kill my flesh. I'm going before God. I'm not supposed to be going, man, I just love pornography and I just don't want to give it up. But you know what, God, if you're going to make me take it, take it then. Right? That's not the way it is. God's saying, look, you bring yourself to me, but bring it with a willing heart. Come with me with thanksgiving. Come to me with praise going, you know what? God, my desire when I walk into the court is I'm bringing my flesh and I want to kill it. I'm not bringing it in because I want to take it with me. I don't want any part of this thing. I want to be done with it. I want it to be dead. I want it, when I leave here, I want it to be left in there dead. Those Reese's Cups need to be in the trash, right? That's a silly thing, but you'll remember it, I promise. You'll be at the store and go, Reese's Cups, oh yeah, I should throw those away. Don't do that in the store. But what happens, bottom line, is moving east to west, right? And then it says here, for the Lord is good. I didn't even finish that verse. Be thankful unto him and bless his name, right? For the opportunity to go before him. Remember what the outer court, it's about death. For the Lord is good, his mercy is everlasting, and his truth endureth to all generations. Right? God has an abundant life for us. He has an abundant life for us. Every single one of us. The problem is we never live it because we're so caught up in the stuff that we think is important. And all the things that you value on this earth, when you stand before God, guess what? They will mean nothing. Not a thing. And the things that we devalue on earth that we don't think have any importance, when we stand before God, we'll be going, if I could only go back, if I could just get one more shot. But we don't. This is our shot. You are given one life. Your tombstone's gonna have two numbers. The one where it starts and the one where it finishes. And the dash, that's up to you. What do you do with it? Your dash can be filled with amazing things for God, or it could be a self-serving, wasted time on earth. You'll figure it out when you get to heaven, how you did it. Next, the Lord gives us an overview of the entire tabernacle. Check this out, verse number 17. All the pillars round about the court shall be painted with silver, their hooks be of silver, and their sockets of brass. Again, we see that same image. We're looking here now at 60 columns or 60 pillars, all of the same design, suspending this linen, court, this linen curtain all the way around the outside of the tabernacle. Verse 18. The length of the court shall be 150, 100, should be 100 cubits. We know 150. The breadth thereof, 50 uh, cubits, which is 75 feet. And where the height, 5 cubits, 7.5 feet of fine twined linen and their sockets of brass. Okay. Now, since we know that God does everything for a reason, it's kind of cool when we think about the fact that God uses the term fine linen. Okay. Because if you look up fine linen again in the scriptures, what you do is it shows up. Right? It shows up in the, in the scripture again. So we realize that God has a picture in everything. He has pictures in his furnishings in the way that things can be constructed, the materials that are used, the purpose for the tabernacle, even how it functions. Look at this in the book of Mark, Mark 15, 46. And he bought fine linen and took him down. This is talking about Jesus' body has been taken down from the cross. And he bought fine linen and took him down and wrapped him in the linen and laid him in a sepulcher, which was hewn out of a rock and rolled a stone under, unto the door of the sepulcher. 
So the covering of the tabernacle, the outer court, is the exact same material used to cover the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. The linen covered the outer court where sin was paid for through a sacrifice. And guess what? It will be the same linen that will cover the body of our Savior who gave himself a sacrifice for sin. There's no coincidences in the Bible. As we continue to see, the Lord chooses specific materials because there's a purpose to it. He's trying to reveal himself to us. He's trying to show his love to us. And he's also showing to show us who we are and what the purpose of our life is. Verse 19, all the vessels of the, of the tabernacle and all the services thereof and all the pins, this pins, when it talks about pins, that's the stakes that are sticking into the ground. And all the pins thereof and all the pins of the court shall be, remember what touches the ground is always? It's brass, right? So guess what? Every one of those pins is going to be brass. Everything it makes touch is representative of judgment. Pointing to the fact that, guess what? This world is going to face judgment for its sin. And that's a reality. While at the same time, the judgment picture in the brass reveals the purpose of the tabernacle, which is to usher humanity into the presence of God. In the outer court, atonement for sin through animal sacrifices would be made to appease God's judgment on a temporary basis. It would be for a year. But then what's going to happen is God's going to send perfect blood. The only blood ever to walk this earth like this. Perfect, sinless blood. And it's to satisfy sin for all of eternity. It does it forever, forever. Verse 20 says, And thou shalt command the children of Israel that they bring thee pure oil, olive, beaten for the light, to cause the lamp to burn always. We're talking about the lamp inside of the tabernacle, the light of God. Jesus said, I am the light of the world, right? So this is a representative of God's light. And what's interesting, we talked about before, is the fact that it doesn't say that the oil was pressed. It says that it was beaten. Beaten. That's how you made the most pure oil is by beating it. Beating it. And it's interesting, right? It had to be refined. So how it has to be beaten and it has to be refined because through its purity, that purity of that oil would then be translated into light. So the purity of what comes from us. Because guess what? In my life, I can tell you, I have dealt with adversity. We've dealt with, with being beaten, the things of this world beaten out of us. Some of us hold on to things that we think are important, things that are sinful, things that we know are not right. We know in the eyes of God that they're wrong, yet we hold on to them. And sometimes God's got to beat us through adversity or through tragedy to get us to let go of them because he knows that they keep us away from him. He says, look, there's a light that could burn so bright but you're just not pure. You're filled with all this garbage. And right now you're being pressed. You feel the pressure of God. But there needs to be a beating where it needs to be knocked out of you. And if you'll just give up and let it go, man, I can take your life and guess what you can do? You can be a light. A light that changes the world. And I'm a living testament of God beating the crap out of me to get me to let go of things. To realize that my pride was an issue that separated me from God. And when I thought I was serving God through my religious work and service, man, I've been saved 18 years, and I spent a long time at that time working, 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 doing things, but not being holy. Doing it because I was trying to please man or please whoever else or trying to show off or whatever, I don't know, but just stupid stuff. And when God finally refined me and said, you know what, why are you doing it? Who's it for? He was able to strip a lot of that garbage out. I'm still a work in progress like the rest of us. But man... We've got to be beaten sometimes. Sometimes life doesn't bring us what we want, but you've got to remember God always has a purpose. He's trying to make you pure. He's trying to make you holy. He's trying to turn you into something he can really use. 
It's the things in this world that pollute our souls. The things that we think are so important, they pollute us and they make us impure. And God doesn't want that for us. We want to be pleasing to him. And the only way we can do it is to kill him. Take him to the cross and nail him and leave him there. We need to sacrifice them not only for God, but for our families. People that love you. These things in your life, they're never going to help you be more godly. They're never going to make you be more kind, not more understanding. Your flesh will never draw you to do godly things. It will always, the Bible says that to to flesh is an enmity of God. It means it's an exact opposition. The Bible says in the book of James, it says to be friends with the world is to be the enemy of God. The enemy, it says. That means if I've got my eyes on the world, I'm actually the enemy of God. And if any of us were asked if we were the enemy of God, oh, no, no, I love God. I love God. I love God. Well, let's check the history on your YouTube and see what you've been looking at. Let's see what you've been doing. Let's see where your focus is. Let's see what your mind is. Let's see what you say when you're not around God. How do you act when you're not in church? How do you act when you're in traffic and nobody else is in the car? And if we refine those things, we go, man, you know what? I got some impurities. We can address them. The good news is if we don't, God can beat them out of us. Some of us are a living testament to that. We've been beat all to pieces. But you know what? If we let them go, they can be gone. We can sacrifice them. Our flesh will never, ever, as I said, ever draw us closer to God. Galatians 6, 8 says this, For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. Corruption can also mean death or destruction. So he that soweth to the flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption, but he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. So to sow into what this means here is it means that I'm going to invest my time, I'm going to commit myself, or I'm going to submit myself to. That's what this sowing is talking about in my flesh. This could be lust, anger, bitterness, envy, strife, whatever. Self-pity. Woe is me. Woe is me. Life is so hard. If you think this life's about you, guess what? You're delusional. It isn't about you. The devil will tell us it's all about us. But what about you? Aren't you supposed to get this? Aren't you supposed to get that? Aren't you supposed to be happy? There's nowhere in the Bible that says you're supposed to be happy. It says you're supposed to be holy. Because about the cool thing about holiness is the byproduct of holiness. Guess what it does? Happiness. It's awesome. Sell out to God, and guess what? Your life, he says, you know, you know, submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. The enemy will be drawn away from you. Drawn away. Run away in fear. So God wants to do work in us. Galatians, or Colossians 3, says this. Verse 5 says, mortify, kill. Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affections, evil concupiscence, covetousness, which is idolatry. It says in verse number 8, but now you also put off all these. Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Verse 9, lie not one to another, seeing that you have put off the old man and his deeds. The person you used to be before you got saved, you should not do or say or act like that person. If you still do and you have no remorse, there's a really, really good chance you do not know the Lord. Verse 10, and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. When people look at us, guess what they should see? An image of Christ in every part of who we are, right? Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, any, good, bad, or indifferent, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. Our choices and our behavior should look just like his. Verse 14, and above all these things, put on charity. When you see the word charity, it's talking about godly love, right? That's godly love. That's a selfless love. Which 
bond of perfectness. When you see perfect, that's maturity in the Bible. So talking about not talking about human love. Human love, guess what? Always conditional. Always self-serving. When we do things, oh man, I, you know, I love to give. It makes me feel so good. Amazing, huh? We give our presents, man. I don't like receiving gifts. Man, I love giving because it makes me feel good. And look at this last verse, 15. And let the peace of God, notice this word, rule in your hearts. So the peace of God rule in your hearts. What it's saying is that peace would be the number one thing in your heart above everything else. Right? To the which also ye are called in one body and be ye thankful. He says, you've got to kill all this stuff of the flesh, embrace these things of God, and if you'll do them, really do them, then guess what? Peace will rule in your heart. Rule in your heart. But, remember, this is not about us. It's about Him. It's not about us receiving the peace, because what happens, the byproduct of the peace is we get to walk with God. That's the whole goal, right? It's through this peace that we get fellowship with Him. And we remember, right, the reason why God created the tabernacle, because He wanted to restore fellowship with humanity. We're the problem for the fellowship being broken. God's restoring it. It is a place and a picture of the restoration of fellowship. Verse number 21, last verse. You guys have done so good. Proud of you. We're almost there. In the tabernacle of the congregation without the veil, which is before the testimony, this is outside of the Holy of Holies inside of the tabernacle, Aaron and his son shall order it from evening to morning before the Lord. It shall be a statute forever unto their generations on behalf of the children of Israel. It's talking about the light of God, right? God created us for this fellowship, right? When we were lost, guess what? We were in sin and we were in the bondage to sin. We were living in that bondage, in bondage to our fleshly desires. And God heard our cry, right? And he sent a deliverer. And this month we celebrate, right? We celebrate that deliverer arriving on earth and living a perfect life in the humble form of a man, living a sinless life, and then suffering a horrific death. Not because of him. Not because of the punishment he deserved, but the punishment we deserved. For you see, Jesus Christ offered himself as a sacrifice. He did that so that we could experience life from death. Life from death. And if we take that a little bit further. Now, have we accepted that amazing, precious gift? Have you received Christ as your Savior? You're a child of God? Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. If you haven't, hey man. He died that you might have, out of the death of sin, you might be brought to life. And if you have, right, are you walking in fellowship with him? Is your sin, is your flesh, are your desires the things that pollute your walk with God? Or are you refining yourself every day? Are you working and taking those things daily and waking up? God, reveal to me sin. Show to me what's wrong in my life. Reveal to me what it is I need to get right. And Lord, let me take it to the cross and let me kill it there. And let me not drag it back to my seat, but leave it at the altar of God. An altar, which is a killing place. This is an altar. Man, come up here and kill it. Kill it. Mark 8, 34 and 35 says this. And when he had called the people unto him with his disciples also, he said unto them, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Verse 35. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever shall lose his life for my sake, they give themselves, they give their life, their desire, their wants, their everything. They pin it to the cross. And it says in the Gospels, the same shall save it. We gain life through death. Kill the things of this world because I promise you, they will not be what you think they're the answer. And they are not. You could have all the money in the world. 
and die a lonely, broken, hurting person. There's nothing on this planet that will ever satisfy you because you're born with a God-shaped void in your heart. And not until you put God in that void will it ever be filled. Because guess what? It just becomes a chasm. The more you stick in there, the greater it becomes. It becomes a black hole that will suck everything in this world into that hole. And as it gets in there, it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And people become more and more desperate. That's why you see people that have got everything in the whole world. Man, they've got all the success in the world and they kill themselves and they're strung out on drugs because guess what? There's nothing that will satisfy. Only one thing, a relationship with him. When we nail those things in our lives that we know are wrong and they're not pleasing to God, when we nail them to the cross, then, 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 then you'll experience life from death. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. God, we thank you so much for today. Thank you for the message you've given us. Thank you for the amazing picture we see not only in the altar, God, but also in the outer court. Thank you as we work our way through. These are just the instructions. We haven't even gotten to the actual construction yet, but God, I praise you for what you've taught us. Thank you for opening our eyes to see so much truth. And Lord, what I see today is that it's about, it's about a killing place. It's about us recognizing the fact there are things in our lives, God. There is sin. There's a bondage, Lord, that's, that's upon us. Some of us are in a bondage to a sin that has a hold on us. It has a hold on us, and we cannot escape. But you will make a way of escape. You have through the cross. We can take anything to you. And the thing is, you already know all about it. We're not fooling anybody. You see it. You know it. And you're simply asking us to bring it to you. Cast your cares upon me. And then what do you say? For I careth for you. God, you love us in spite of our sin, in spite of our brokenness, in spite of our situations. God, you love us. And Lord, with our heads bowed, with our eyes closed, as you speak to our hearts, Lord, if there's one here today and you would say, you know what? I don't have that relationship with God. I might know God. I might be religious. I might have read the Bible. I might have been in church my whole life, in fact. But if it came down to a personal relationship with Christ, well, I fully gave my will to God. Because you understand, there's a lot of people say, I believe in God. And guess what? They're on their way straight to hell. Because guess what? The devil believes in God. He doesn't doubt God's existence, but he's never surrendered his will to God. He's never accepted the gift of Christ on the cross. There is a moment in time. The Bible says you must be born again. Your initial, your first birth, guess what? It was so powerful that they made a piece of paper and wrote down a specific time. It was such a dramatic moment. You went from lost. You went from inside your mother to outside. You were born. And the Bible says you must spiritually be born again. There is a moment in time where, boom, you went from being lost to being saved because you accepted the gift of Jesus Christ. If you can think back to a time when you've done that, praise the Lord. That's yours forever. But if you have never done that, you have an opportunity today. If you're online, you're watching this recorded, wherever you are, it does not matter. Bottom line is, you can receive the gift of God, which is eternal life through Jesus Christ right now. It doesn't take a ceremony. It doesn't take any fancy prayer. It's not anything to do with that. The Bible says, For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. It's nothing more than you surrendering your will to God. You want him? Guess what? I guarantee you he wants you. The Bible says he died for the whole world that they might be saved. So their heads bowed and their eyes closed. I'm going to lead you in prayer. This is private. No one's going to be saying anything. But if you want to receive Christ as your Savior, I'm going to give you an opportunity to pray right in your seat. You can pray this prayer. And guess what? God is with us and he's listening right now. He's simply waiting on you to surrender to him. With their heads bowed and eyes closed, if you want to receive Christ as your Savior, pray this prayer in your heart, in your mind, not out loud, and let Christ do a work in your life. Repeat after me. Dear Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. And I am so sorry for my sin. It's through my sin that I was separated from you. And God, I don't want that. I'm asking you in the best way I know how 
to come into my heart, to forgive me of my sins, and to save my soul. Lord, I trust you for my eternity, and I trust you for my salvation. Thank you for saving me. I will see you in heaven one day. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.